Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And what bumper could I use for uh, the book The Jesuits? Uh, in North America in the 17th century, but the uh, Huron Carol, written by John de Brebeuf, um, a recent recording of it anyways. Um, so I used that before for a previous series, but it's a, it's a nice one. Uh, so yeah, that's what we're jumping into. We're going to be looking at Francis Parkman's uh, The Jesuits in North America in the 17th century, which is the second volume of France and England in North America, um, Parkman's seven-volume history of the French Empire. In, in the Americas. And I think this is my favorite volume of them uh, because since for a long time, I've been interested in the Jesuits. I've actually taught uh, a selection of the Jesuit relations to history students from time to time. And I've loved those documents because um, I, I think I'm interested in, in missionaries, not so much because I, I'm a Christian, which I'm not, but because I'm interested in in culture clashes, and I'm interested in how cultures communicate, especially in terms of philosophy and theology and religion and beliefs, and you get a lot of that in this book. Um, of course, Parkman is going to continue his main thesis about the, the the kind of the root fault of the French Empire in North America, which would be kind of the absolutism, the military, and the monastery being kind of hand in hand in in this imperial venture, and this is going to give them a disadvantage over the British. Um, but boy, is this story heroic and epic and crazy in a lot of ways. I mean, the most of these Jesuit leaders are martyred in brutal ways, and they 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 meet their death with such heroism and bravery. It's it's kind of amazing to read about. And you know, I've read the primary sources uh, several times, and it's one thing to read about this in the primary sources, but uh, when Parkman puts all this together. It's quite amazing, quite a great story. book covers the 15 years or so of the of the Huron mission and the various other Jesuit missions in North America, including the one in the so-called tobacco country, which would be up by Sonse, um, and the, the missions in Quebec and Montreal as well, which would uh, were also targeting Indians largely, but uh, provided uh, religious services for the for the, the French living in, in those regions. But the focus is on the Huron mission and the interactions with the Iroquois, um, because that is really the center of this epic drama, and it's the 
the conflict with those nations and their cultures is what led to the martyrdom of the of the Jesuits. So compared to the first volume, which covered over a century of, of exploration and settlement and, and different experiments, this one is a much, much more focused study looking at just a, really from 1635 or so um, till, well, 1633 maybe is when the mission first starts to, to 1650. So it's a little bit more than 15 years of time. And then we get a little bit of an epilogue um, about the failure of the Jesuits after that. Um, now, uh, Parkby doesn't say it's a total failure. Right? It's a failure in their goal of converting the Huron, but it does establish a, a church presence in, in, the, in New France, which would, of course, be very enduring for, for many, for, for, for a century after this. But undoubtedly, the Jesuits among the Indians is one of the great stories of of the French Empire in in the Americas. Um, it's produced several saints. It's produced, uh, including uh, an Indian saint, I believe. I forget her name. Parkman doesn't really mention her, at least not in this book. Uh, Catherine was was her given name, I think. Oh, I'll maybe look that up later. Um, but of course, like uh, Brabouf is is canonized, and some of these other Jesuit um, missionaries are, are canonized. It's it's left this wonderful source, um, the Jesuit relations. So let me talk a brief about sources about um, his main source. Parkman's main source for this is the Jesuit relations. The Jesuit relations were the reports given by the Jesuits in the Huron colony and other places in the in the New World to to France. They're just basically their their reportage, um, but they have all sorts of details about Indian life. Uh, their culture, their religion, their medical practices, their the ways of raising children, their gender relations, as well as the story of the mission itself. So all of the these sources allow Parkman pretty much to piece together everything he needs to for this this account. So that's that's going to be his main source here. So unlike some of the other volumes in this book where he has to draw on many different sources, this one, you know, the general relations are huge though. I mean, there it's like hundreds of volumes, but. It is a, a rather concise collection, um, all in sort of one place. All right, so um, what's his thesis in this one? Well, he's got the overarching thesis, which we're already aware of for the, for the whole work, which is the conflict of the English and the French empires and the reason for the English uh, success and French failure. Um, you know, in, in this, the thesis of this particular book is... I think it's focused more on just how amazing these kind of Jesuits were and, and how heroic their, their mission was. He writes, Full as they are of dramatic and philosophic interests bearing strongly on the political destinies of America and closely involved with the history of its native population, it is wonderful that they have been left so long in obscurity. Uh, while the infant colonies of England still clung feebly to the shores of the Atlantic, events deeply ominous to the future were in progress, unknown to them in the very heart of the continent. It will be seen in the sequel of this volume that civil and religious liberty found strange allies in this Western world. So there's a little bit more he says here about the, just the, the you know, the fact that these scholars, these, um, and that's what the Jesuits were, right? It was a rigorous scholarly education that they had to go through to become a Jesuit. And not just here, but elsewhere in the world, they became frontiersmen. They became uh, 
adventurers. They became people who had to learn other languages and 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 with that great peril tried to establish missions in in other countries, whether it's Japan or China. And that kind of contrast between their personalities and their mission and the realities that it would take them to affect that mission and realize that mission are pretty striking, you know. Someone like Matteo Ricci, you know, largely lived a scholarly life in China. He he went there to as a, as a Jesuit missionary, but he largely, you know, lived in the court, largely did scholarly stuff, interacted with with Chinese, you know, scholar officials and things like that. So, he wasn't thrown in the mud. The Jesuits in North America were pretty much thrown in the mud. There's a scene later on where they have to learn snowshoeing in addition to learning the Huron languages. I mean, just to basically survive. They're in the midst of war, war between the Huron and Iroquois, war against the French, um, by uh, war against specifically the Jesuits by, by the Iroquois. Um, of course, they got their martyrdom. Many of these people were martyred, murdered, in, you know, killed in brutal ways. Um, I think... Lejeune was hatcheted or something, but others were burned alive and stuff. I mean, very, very um, gruesome ass, uh, executions. Um, and just having to live this crude life in this frontier land is, you know, such a contrast from their upbringing and who they are. And, you know, you get the sense that the Jesuit training and, and, and zeal is what made it possible for them to do what they did um, in, in North America. And then he talks a little bit in this introduction about the sources. And he's of the opinion, which I think many people would disagree with now, but he was of the opinion at the time that these sources are very, very good uh, for telling us about Indian life. Quote, um, I, got it, I got it here. Quote, uh, I should add that the closest examination has left me no doubt that these missionaries wrote in perfect good faith and that the relations hold a high place as authentic and trustworthy historical documents. They are very scarce and no complete collection of them exists in America. Uh, with regards to the condition and character of the primitive inhabitants of North America, it is impossible to exaggerate their value as an authority. He's talking there about the Jesuits. I'm sure many historians now would disagree with him on that point and say, give me a break. These people didn't understand them. But I have read the Jesuit relations, or these selections of them in translation. And I think they do a fairly good job of, of being trying to be objective. And they have, an, they have a reason to be objective in that they want to understand the traditions, the cultures, the values of these people who they're trying to convert. They don't necessarily respect them, but they want to understand them. And they, they respect them enough to at least record them honestly, objectively, kind of almost, I don't want to say scientifically, because there's so much in the Jesuit worldview that's not scientific. Um, it's kind of almost, it's preposterous actually to, to kind of suggest that when it's something like medicine, that the Jesuit response was more scientific than the Huron. Yeah, the Hurons did stuff that didn't seem to work when an epidemic hit. But the Jesuit response was prayer and, 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 and conversion, which just didn't prevent any deaths. It just let them imagine that those people, when they died, they went up to heaven. Uh, so yeah, it's not a science versus kind of unscientific view clashing. It's, but it is a particular, there's a particular objectivity to it, uh, some empiricism to the Jesuit approach, if not scientific. So jump into this. Uh, I'm going to do three episodes on this book. It's actually 
Um, how long is this? It's almost 400 pages, actually, this one. It's a little bit longer. But I'm going to do it in three episodes. Just because this series is going to be long enough without me stretching it out. So, uh, 30, 32 chapters or so in the entire book. Um, but um, one reason, you know, the actual narrative of the Jesuits only covers about 300 pages because uh, Parkman begins with a very, very long account, an introduction called the Native Tribes. And this kind of covers ground he covered in um, Pontiac's Revolt, the introduction to Pontiac's Revolt, but it, it's a little bit more detailed on some aspects. So what this is, is it's the introduction to Indian politics, Indian culture, um, Indian languages, just the overall Indian <clears throat> experience and way of life in among the Iroquois, the here the Wyandots, the Huron, and some other Algonquin groups. So just the people that the Jesuits interacted with. Parkman's trying to describe them. But I think one thing he like in the Pontiac's revolt, he focused on the political organization. All right, the clans, the tribes, like especially among the Iroquois, um, and the nature of political leadership. Because that's what he needed to know about understanding where Pontiac comes from and how Pontiac was able to maintain power and how Pontiac was able to do what he did. So that makes sense. Here, he does a little bit of that, but he's primarily interested in, in their religion, their kind of social and political institutions, and particularly their, their, their beliefs, their religions and superstition. And he actually has a section here called the Indian Mind, in which he's trying to get at the overall picture of the Indian, just how Indians see things. Because that's going to be key when we look at the culture clash. Because we want to understand here how the Huron understood the Jesuits and understood their message. And how the Jesuits understood how the Hurons understood their message, right? Because it wasn't just they misunderstood each other. They misunderstood how each other read the other. You know, they, they didn't really... I mean, they're, they're, this, this is really a contact zone with a deep culture clash. And it ends tragically, obviously, for the Jesuits. It ends tragically for the Huron. Really, that may have happened if the Jesuits not been there. The Jesuits weren't really part of that. But, uh, you know, the Jesuits were there at the time of the Iroquois war against the Huron, which left the Huron basically um, totally destroyed. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tragic time, but it's a very, it's a, it's a cultural context zone. And it, you know, and in the midst of epidemics, in the midst of war, uh, the Jesuits are trying to do this, find these converts. And in doing so, you know, they're not going to understand fully the, the, the culture that they're trying to convert. They don't respect it enough to, to do that. But, uh, what I'm trying to say here is it's just, it's, a, it's an interesting contact zone. And f for, f to understand that, and Parkman does try to understand that, you need to do some background work on Indian religion. And he does that here in this introduction. Anyways, uh, another thing he does here, which I guess is old hat. I mean, it's not, it's just important to mention here, just because, you know, I do think Parkman's been criticized a little bit too much for his portrayal of Indians. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of problems with his portrayal, and we'll see that with the way he describes Indian religion here. But, uh, quote, uh, this is right in the beginning of this. America, when it was known to Europeans, was, as it long been, a scene of widespread revolution. 
North and South Indian or North and South tribe was giving place to tribe, language to language, and for Indian, hopelessly unchanging in respect to individual and social development, was as regarded tribal relations and local haunts, mutable as the wind. In Canada and northern sections of the United States, the elements of change were especially active. Unquote. So what he's saying here is Indians were hi historical politically in terms of war and peace and conquest and tribes rising and falling, but not necessarily historical in terms of, of individual and social development. Um, so it's, it's a mixed, he, his, his approach here is a bit, uh, it's right in the one way and, it, and it's wrong in the other. Um, yes, obviously, you can't have, I mean, he's kind of dense here, actually. How can you have political history and not social, how, how can you not have social change? How can you not be aware of social change? How can you write a book about Jesuits among the Huron, converting people, at least attempting to, and not be aware that ideas change or social institutions change? I mean, I, I just don't know how you can be that dense about this issue, but it's the 19th century when this was written. And it is what it is. Um, I mean, there's just kind of, he is, he is overcoming and facing it and wearing on, it, wear, wearing on his back as he writes uh, a lot of racist ideas about, about indigenous people of, of the Americas. Um, so in this very long introduction, it's like 50 pages, um, he covers the, the Algonquins, the Iroquois and the Huron. And he spends a lot of time in the Huron. And he's really interested in the Huron, their, their way of life, their gender relations. He thinks women are, are basically exploited by the Huron society. Um, and their medical views. And that comes up a lot, actually, because the Huron mission, the Jesuit Huron mission was there during, and maybe it was partially caused by the, the Jesuit mission, a smallpox epidemic. Maybe it was the Jesuits who brought him in. I'm not, I'm not sure. But it hit at the time the Jesuits were there. And it, it led to a lot of the persecution and tragedy of the, of the Jesuit mission. Because who do you blame? You blame the sorcerers, right? For who's the sorcerer? Who's, who's claiming to have magic powers? Who's claiming to know God? Who's claiming to be able to give you everlasting life? It's those weird Jesuits. And so maybe they're responsible for this. Um, so, but then at the same time, the Jesuits, their approach to the epidemic was a little bit callous as well, wasn't it? Like, oh, just convert. You'll save your soul. You'll be dead, but you'll be in heaven. All right, big deal. I mean, it's not like they had medicine that could cure anything. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, the fact that this is set during a smallpox epidemic means uh, Parkman has some interest here in laying out what Huron views of, of disease are, and just if you're interested in the history of medicine, this can be kind of fascinating to read. Quote, a great knowledge of simples for the cure of disease is popularly ascribed to the Indian. Here, however, as elsewhere, his knowledge is in fact scanty. He, he rarely reasons from cause to effect or from effect to cause. Disease, in his belief, is a result of sorcery. The agency of spirits or supernatural influences, undefined and undefinable. The Indian doctor was a conjurer, and his remedies were to the last degree preposterous, ridiculous, or revolting. The well-known Indian sweating bath is the most prominent of the few means of cure based on agency simply physical. And this, with other natural remedies, was applied not by professed doctors, but by the sufferer himself or his friends. The Indian doctor beat, shook, and pinched his patients, howled, whooped, rattled his tortoise cell, 
at the end to expel the evil spirit. Bit him till blood flowed and then displayed in triumph a small piece of wood, bone, or iron which he had hidden in his mouth and which he affirmed was the source of the disease now happily removed. End quote. Like psychic surgery was being used. And before you pick on the Huron too much, people still do this. This is still, you know, there's still people who do sleight of hand um, psychic surgery um, and claim to have some kind of religious power in doing so. So, um, yeah. It's still a thing. Maybe not as popular as it used to be, but hopefully people are smarter than falling for that. But uh, great stuff here. He's got a section on the Huron Iroquois family and their general features, what they have in common. And he talks here about something we'll get to later on in this episode, actually the last chapter I want to look at today, and that is the Feast of the Dead. Um, One of the most striking aspects of Huron religion and something that the Jesuits were interested in because it seemed to imply to them that the Huron believed in a soul. Um, and anyways, they documented it quite in a lot of detail in the Jesuit relations. Is this Feast of the Dead? And, and this is basically where the Huron periodically would dig up all the corpses and carry them sometimes miles through a whole kind of procession to a common burial ground in one place and then bury them. And, and it, I don't know. I don't remember how long it happened, like every six years, 10 years, something like that. But, I mean, it was like a collective grieving process, but it involved people carrying their dead relatives who might be dead a year or 10 years, you know, hundreds of miles to this common burial ground. Kind of amazing um, thing. And it's, it's, it is, it, we do get a whole chapter on the Feast of the Dead. So not only were the Jesuits interested in it, Parkman is interested in it. And I think anyone who reads this stuff has a hard time not being kind of fascinated at, at this type of custom. Um, we get then a review of their social and political organization. And, and here he doesn't really advance much on his views when he wrote Pontiac. Um, his view being unity and disunity kind of co- combined, uh, you know, like the Iroquois Confederacy being that sort of way. Uh, that the disunity of the tribes on the surface hides a greater unity that exists through the clans, for instance, that kind of that, that, that cross perpendicularly with the tribes and cross clans and are important for social organization, but also politics and, and, and organization of society. Um, and that, that kind of that, the fact that there are, there are, connections and alliances and, and, and grievances and things that go far beyond the surface and that the outside observer can't really understand all the time. Um, and he claims to have a little bit more understanding of it. Uh, he goes over again the Iroquois political system. Of course, you got the Confederacy. And he mentions something very important here, and that's the role of memory in Indian politics in this part of the world. Of course, these are oral cultures. Right? And, and this is something that'd be very unfamiliar. I mean, I've had students when I, you know, I think it's when I taught American students, I never faced any conflict over oral cultures have, having a concept of history. I mean, it was pretty much, yeah, of course, if, if you're an oral culture, yeah, you don't write down your history, but of course you have songs and, and stories. And yeah, that's a legitimate historical source. Um, and those are legitimate civilizations. But when I came to China, and started doing that same kind of teaching when I'm doing world history. Because when you do world history, you have to appreciate oral cultures. It's just, you can't tell the story completely if you focus only on literate cultures. Um, 
And I, I made that same kind of case. And there I got a lot of resistance. Students telling me, well, you're not, if you're not writing, you're not writing, you're not civilized. It's a kind of a backward thing. And I don't know if that's because of the Chinese relationship with writing, which goes really far back, um, their education system or something. But, you know, it's, I've thought more about oral culture since that, because I always try to take it for granted that, of course, everyone would agree oral cultures are legitimate, right? Like, by the way, if you want a great story about oral cultures, uh, read uh, Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling by Ted Chiang. Um, a wonderful story. It's in the Exhalation um, Anthology. Um, his second collection of short stories, a beautiful story about, um, it's science fiction, but it's also historical. And it looks at the transition from oral cultures to literary cultures, and then the transition from our literary culture to maybe a more oral culture again, um, through technology. Well, not really, I mean, even a better literary culture, right? I think that's where he was going with it, right? Where, yeah, so in, in, that, in that story, the oral culture converts to a literary culture, so things get preserved. It's not just based on memory. And, and you have to kind of deal with sources and texts. Um, and in the future, then, technology will allow us to not even have to rely on memory at all because memory can be perfectly recorded. And so, you know, what we can't even make up myths about ourselves anymore. Like, not everything about life is recorded on paper. So, yeah, the stuff on paper I have to deal with, honestly. I wrote that. I that's what I thought at one time I can't change it or that's what I agreed to in a contract but you know I can still make up myths about other parts of my life that aren't recorded right but if a technology would allow you to record memory fully you couldn't even lie about that anymore so it's kind of a, a, a hyper literate culture almost anyways a really really great story and kind of touching but uh, anyways Parkman here talks about memory quote in one particular the training of these savage politicians was never surpassed. They had no art or writing to record events, to preserve or stipulations of treaty. Memory, therefore, was taxed to the utmost and developed to an extraordinary degree. They had various degrees for enabling aiding it, such as a bundle of sticks, that a symbol of signs, embers, and rude pictures, which they shared with other tribes. Their famous wampum belts were so many monomic devices, each standing for some act, speech, treaty, or clause of a treaty. These represented the public archives and were divided among various custodians each charged with the memory and interpretation of those assigned to him. The meaning of the belts was from time to time expounded in their councils. In conferences with them, nothing more astonished the French, Dutch, and English officials than the precision with which, before replying to their address, the Indian orators repeated them point by point. Unquote. And that's key, we, you know, that's the thing. Like, when my students now don't, don't trust oral cultures, it's because they've been trained not to have to remember anything. Because it's in a book. In fact, if anything, they, they still kind of try to remember too much, you know, because my feeling is why remember something if it's in a book? I'm, I'm very much of a literary culture in this sense. But if you don't have a book to write things down, you have to learn to memorize and you just develop those skills, uh, whether it's through devices or um, your bundle of sticks or your wampum or just training your mind. You have to learn to do that if you're in a oral culture. All right here. Um, and then towards the end, we get to... Uh, Indian religion and superstition. Um, and I'll just come out and say it because I'm getting kind of late here and I haven't even got into the core text of the Jesuits in North America yet. And that is um, Parkman 
believes that they embrace essentially a primitive theology. Um, basically, not much beyond superstition and very almost literal in a sense, like a literal reading of the natural world. And this then is just translated into a religion. So for Parkman, this is very, very primitive. I, on the other hand, I, I read that and I find that a very strange argument because it's very much based in reality. It's, it's almost more scientific. If you're, if you're drawing your spiritual beliefs from observations and interactions with the natural world, you're making kind of a one, like you're just observing and making a conclusion based on observations informed by some kind of spiritual matrix. I mean, it's, it's a big leap to get to like the monotheism. I mean, and it's, it's true. Like the monotheistic religions, they have one hearth, like Jude, Judaism. That went from kind of, and that, those were polytheistic originally too, the Jews, the Hebrews. It's clear in the Bible even, right? Like the Egyptians had their own gods. Um, and then that gets converted over time into a true monotheism. And then, of course, the Christians and Muslims build off that. So there's like the single hearth of monotheism and maybe Zoroastrianism you can throw in there. But even though it has two gods, the dualism. But like the idea that the world is spiritual is it got many, many hearths all over the world. And, you know, for, for Parkman, that's kind of a sign like that making that leap to monotheism is, is a sign of kind of spiritual or intellectual or philosophical maturity. And, you know, I just think that's a really big leap. You know, I, of course, believed it for much of my life. So, you know, who am I to say? But to call this a primitive theology is really, I guess, coming from that, that racist worldview of the time. Here's some of what he writes on it. Close examination makes it evident that the primitive Indian's idea of a supreme being was a conception no higher than might have been expected. The moment he began to contemplate this object of his faith and sought to clothe it with attributes it became finite and completely ridiculous. The creator of the world stood on the level of a barbarous and degraded humanity, while a natural tendency became apparent to look beyond him to other powers sharing his dominion. The Indian belief, if developed, would have developed into a system of polytheism. In the primitive Indian's conception of a god, the idea of a moral good has no part. The deity does not dispense justice for his world or the next, but leaves mankind under the power of subordinate spirits who can fill and control the universe. Nor is the good and evil of these inferior beings a moral good or evil. The good spirit is the spirit that gives good luck and that ministers to the necessities and desires of mankind. The evil spirit is simply a malicious agent or disease, death or mischance. No Indian language could find the early missionaries or no Indian language could the early missionaries find a word to express the idea of God. Manitou and Oki meant something endowed with supernatural power from the snake skin to the greasy Indian conjecture up to Manabozo or Justin. Kika, the priests were forced to use circumlocution, a great chief of men or he who lives in the sky. Yet it seems that the idea of a supreme controlling spirit might naturally arise from a peculiar character of Indian belief. The idea that each race of animals has its archetype or chief would easily suggest the existence of a supreme chief or spirit of the human race. End quote. So he's kind of stretching his argument here to say, well, even their Views about natural of, of animals seems to say, obviously, there's a supreme beaver, so there'd be a supreme man, at least. But they don't even get that far. So it's, it's all kind of rooted in his conclusion that there's kind of a infantile spirituality among the Indians. But 
yeah, we don't have to buy that part of it. But we understand why he's interested in Indian spirituality, basically because Indian spirituality is going to be encountering Jesuit spirituality. And that is the story he's telling here. So no surprise that he uh, is interested in exploring it. All right, now we finally, finally get to chapter one. Uh, yeah, the book starts on 3.30. Chapter one begins on 4.03. That's how long that introduction is. So we're first introduced to uh, um, Father Lejeune in a chapter called Notre Dame de Anguise. Um, and it starts in Quebec. And we're told a little bit about the religion in Quebec. But primarily, this is a very short chapter, but primarily he's interested in, in Father Lejeune, the founder of the Jesuit mission among the Huron, among the Indians. And he's interested in their zeal, their zeal of the early Jesuits and the, the ambition of their mission. Um, quote, the lives of these early Canadian Jesuits attest the earnestness of their faith and the intensity of their zeal. But it was a zeal brided, curbed, and ruled by a guiding hand. Their marvelous training in equal measure kindled enthusiasm and controlled it, roused into action a mighty power, and made it a subservient to the great material forces which modern science has learned to awaken and to govern. End quote. So uh, I think he agrees with me that these aren't really scientific people. These people are driven by kind of a mad religious zealotry. Um, and that allows them to do kind of almost supernatural feats in, in achieving what they did. Um, but it's it's not coming from a broader scientific perspective. And we see that especially with how they deal with the epidemics that they, they, they see. Uh, but yeah, uh, at this time, this is a time still of the religious wars are still going on in the 1630s, right? The 30 years war began in 1618. It would continue until 1650 or so. So yeah, conflicts, religious conflicts are still raging uh, in, in Europe. Uh, you're still in the midst of this counter-reformation movement that, that the Jesuits are, are really born out of. They're, of course, born out of the, this um, counter-revolutionary um, effort. So, um, yeah, we jump right in. Uh, after dealing with that long introduction, he jumps right in to talk about the Jesuits um, and Father Lejeune. Uh, chapter two, Loyola and the Jesuits, is, is, is your history for those who, who slept through that class in, in high school of the Jesuit order. It's founding Ignatius Loyola and their embrace of documents like Loyola's spiritual exercises. And then he talks about the training of the Jesuits, the years of discipline, the years of preparation, the years of education that go into becoming, before you can become a Jesuit. So he wants to kind of get at the metal of the people who are going to embrace this mission and really focus on the discipline, uh, their embrace of hierarchy. Um, because again, that's, that's key to his overall argument is that the French colonial empire, with the exception of the fur traders, who he has some kind of strange awe for because of their, just their embrace of liberty, you know, was a hierarchical empire, top down, and that atrophied its growth. And, yeah, even in the terms of the missionaries, you had this kind of top-down rigid structure. Everything is coming from uh, a central, a superior who's, who's, who's driving the mission and giving it its orders. There's nothing organic uh, except the zeal of the Jesuits itself, which is very visceral as described in this book. Uh, so it's important for him to lay out the, the discipline 
of the Jesuit order. Um, chapter three, then, we kind of return to Paul Lejeune after that kind of early introduction. In chapter one, we return to him and we, we learn about his uh, actual plan. Um, this is where I mentioned before, we're, we're told that they even had to learn snowshoeing. So uh, Paul Lejeune arrives in New France and he begins his plan for the, for the mission among the Indians. And we're just reminded throughout this chapter how difficult it is, how difficult it is to find pupils, how difficult it is to learn the Indian languages. You know, he has to find Indian teachers to teach him Algonquin languages and Wyandotte and languages like that and the Iroquois. Um, I forget which languages he himself learned. But, you know, his early, pretty much all he had at the beginning was a small Indian boy and a small, quote, Negro um, child. Neither of the three understood the language of the others. That was the start of this Jesuit mission. But zeal just sustained it despite the intense labor and the intense challenges. And, and you know, even to the point of learning to snowshoe, uh, you know, of course, learning just the, how to physically survive in, in this climate, in this, uh, in this environment. Okay, chapter four, Lejeune and the Hunters. So in 1633, 1634, Lejeune is living, you know, he embarks on a hunting expedition with about 20 um, Indians, no other Frenchmen, so he's alone with them. Um, you know, Champlain is actually there to, to bid him his farewell. And he spends time, you know, he experiences Indian winter life while hunting. Um, and he gets to know, like, Indian religions. That's one thing he learns a lot about is the, he begins to develop a relationship with Indian sorcerers um, and Indian faith. Quote, uh, there was one point touching which Lejeune and his Jesuit brethren has yet been unable to solve their doubts. Were the Indian sorcerers mere imposters or were they actually in league with the devil? That the fiends who possessed this land of darkness made their power felt by action direct and potential upon the persons of his wrecked inhabitants. There is, argues Lejeune, good reason to conclude. End quote. So he, he's, they seem to believe in Indian magic. And of course, if you're a Christian... The only way to interpret that is that they're in league with the devil in some way. I mean, it's not coming from power of Christ. It's not a miracle of Christ, these sorcerers. So the only, and if, you know, if you're an Indian, it makes sense. Yeah, so I'm getting the power from the Manitou or something. But, or the Wendigo, something out there is, you know, the great beaver is providing me this power. But if you're a Christian, really the only way to read it is his devil worship. Um, so <laughs> Paul Lejeune is with these devil worshipers, um, learning their language, learning their culture, and beginning laying the foundation of his mission by, by hunting with them. Right? Again, it doesn't seem to be what your typical Jesuit would do, but it's what he has to do to, to make his mission a, a success. It's what he has to do to get it started. And then chapter five, we actually see the founding, it literally, of the Huron mission itself. And this is a uh, fairly lengthy chapter. We're introduced to uh, uh, Brebeuf, uh, another. There's like three really important um, Jesuits that we meet: uh, Lejeune, Brebeuf, and Gouge, Isaac Gouge. Um, these are the three kind of most important of the Jesuits. So there's some others as well we meet, but those are the three big names. 
uh, responsible for writing a lot of the Jesuit relations. Um, but anyways, uh, chapter 5, 1633-1634, actually the same years for his time with the hunters, talks about the establishment of the mission itself. Um, and, you know, early on, it's really interconnected with trade. It's, it's really, you know, a lot of the early interactions between the Jesuits and the Indians were with traders because they're the ones who would come to the Europeans. And, of course, the mission had to survive itself, maintain itself some way. So by latching on to trade, it was able to have, a, have an income and have some support. And it also had, a, you know, it was interacting with this mobile group of people, of people who were a little bit more mobile, a little bit more used to interacting cross-culturally. And I think that's interesting in terms of being a contact zone, is, it, is this, the, the nature of mobile workers. And I don't think enough has been written or thought about just how the important role of, of not migrant workers so much, because obviously important, but not what I'm thinking about here, is mobile workers, workers whose job it is to move around, whether it is merchants or traveling salespeople or carnival workers or uh, bus drivers or whatever it might be, flight attendants, workers who whose life takes them to many different places. And just what is their perspective? I, I wish there'd be an interesting cultural history of, of the mobile worker. But anyways, I'm just thinking about this as I'm reading about the important role of, of trade in sustaining the mission early on. Um, chapter six, we get our formal introduction to, to Brebeuf. Um, and the Huron Mission House, the people who live there, and actually we get a physical description of the mission, which is worth looking at. Um, the house was constructed after the Huron model. It was 36 feet long and about 20 feet wide, framed with strong sapling poles planted in the earth to form the sides, with the ends bent into the arch of the roof, the whole lashed firmly together, braced with cross poles and cross closely covered with overlapping sheets of bark. Without, the structure was strictly Indian, but within the priests, with the aid of their tools, made innovations which were the astonishment of all the country. They divided their dwellings by transverse partitions into three apartments, each with a wooden door, a wondrous novelty in the eyes of their visitors. The first served as a hall, an anteroom, and a place of storage for corn, beans, dried fish. The second, the largest of the three, was the kitchen, workshop, dining room, drawing room, a schoolroom, and bedchamber. The third was a chapel. Here they made their altar. And here were the images, pictures, and sacred vessels. The fire on the ground in the middle of the second apartment, the smoke escaping in the hole of the roof, and the sides were placed on two wide platforms after the Huron fashion. Uh, just a wonderful uh, example of, 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 of architecture in a contact zone, I guess. Uh, drawing on like the local indigenous styles of architecture, but internally serving the purposes of the European Jesuit mission, you know, with a chapel, separate apartments, you know, how that amazes the Huron. It's, it's great. It's wonderful stuff. Um, and we learn a little bit about their early efforts to convert people, not without, without too much success. Um, so we're already getting signs of disease at this point in the story. Um, eventually, a major smallpox epidemic will hit, and I'll talk about that in the next episode because that's going to be the high point of the first major crisis in the Jesuit mission is going to be the, the, the smallpox epidemic and the response to it. But, uh, you know, we do start to see sicknesses and we start to see the Indian response to these sicknesses 
uh, in specifically in the dream feast, which uh, Parkman says is the most powerful remedy in case of sickness or when a village was infested with evil spirits. The time and manner of holding it was determined at a solemn council. The scene of madness began at night. Men, women, and children, all pretending to have lost their sense, rushed shrieking and howling from house to house, upsetting everything in their way, throwing firebrands, beating those they met, or drenching them with water, and availing themselves of this time for license or to take a safe revenge on any who offended them. This scene of frenzy continued till daybreak. No corner of the village was secure from the maniac crew. In the morning, there was a change. They ran from house to house, accosting the inmates by name and demanding of each the satisfaction of some secret want. And it goes on like this. But Wow. That's a weird way to cure disease, is to kind of let out all the evil spirits of the community. Maybe it makes sense, in a sense, or I could... It's kind of like people who think that cancer is caused by built-up anger and resentment and things like that. you got to let it go if you're going to be cured. Um, but the Dream Feast, wonderful, great stuff. And then the final chapter I want to talk about um, is the Feast of the Dead. Uh, this is set in 1636-37. Um, and they witnessed this in the summer of 36. They witnessed the, the Feast of the Dead um, where all the people of all the different nations of the Huron bring the bodies of the recently dead to a big um, common grave. And it's not a very long chapter. It's just a description of the, of the feast. I've actually read the original, at least a translation of the original Jesuit accounts of the Feast of the Dead. And I know that they saw in this some positive spiritual message specifically that these people believed in a soul and, and that if they treated their dead this way, they must have some conception of, of a soul that can be saved and that would be a key for them in their conversion efforts. All right, that's going to do it for now. So in the next episode, I'll look at pages, this is li again, Library of America version, pages 458 to 612. So it'll be a longer section. But it's going to focus on the, the destruction of the first mission uh, due to the smallpox epidemic. Uh, the other Jesuit missions that get thrown around here and there, like in the Tobacco Nations and Quebec and Montreal. And then the return of the Jesuits to the Huron and the, and the Iroquois um, and, the, and the Iroquois wars against the Huron and how the, what impact that would have on the Jesuits. So, um, but we're well on our way to getting through this wonderful history of the Jesuits in North America. Again, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, book in this series. So, anyways, let me know what you think about contact zones, about, uh, about the Jesuits in North America, about anything about Canadian history that you want to talk about. Um, send me your comments at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, I will see you next time. So, thanks for, for listening, and I'll see you then as I continue looking at uh, the Jesuits in North America in the 17th century.